Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, faculty member of the Kerrig Institute, a bunch of other stuff, and I'm presenting here in Kansas City for all day on metabolic flexibility after the age of 40 so should be pretty fun but wanted to hop on here for a bit on iron radio you could tell some personal stories then anecdotes <laughs> yeah i know now that i'm like 45 i'm like well you know here's what i did right <laughs> i do a podcast and oh, we're all stories. over 40 <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it's actually you, you would be sort of close to phil except i think phil is in california at the meet um yeah as i understand it so yeah halfway um, all right, I have uh, some news, and essentially we'll just make it a news episode today, everyone. Uh, and then, of course, we'll catch up with Phil when he's back from uh, his, hopefully, PR. Fake hip yeah. PR. Uh, Strength and Muscle Sport News. Let's start with this one. This is a, a new piece from Frontiers in Nutrition. And Mike, I think you were mentioning something about this not that long ago, which is what is the sweet spot for overeating? That's what this paper is about. Um, Ooh, I haven't seen this one yet. I'm uh, excited to hear about it. So, and I noticed that Nick Bird was one of the reviewers on it. So, you know, that gives nice. me a sense of, yeah, um, satisfaction that this is probably good. So this is by... Uh, Gary John Slater and colleagues, again, Frontiers in Nutrition, fall 2019. This is brand new stuff. Uh, is an energy surplus required to maximize skeletal muscle hypertrophy associated with resistance training? So obviously that caught my eye. Um, yeah. It says, let's see, the rate and amount of muscle hypertrophy associated with resistance training is influenced by a wide array of variables, and our listeners know this. Uh, including the training program, uh, training experience, gender, genetics, and, of course, nutritional status. And since we don't get to change our genetics, at least not until gene doping becomes a bigger thing, <laughs> um, you know, nutrition is something, obviously, that Mike and I have interest in, uh, and Phil as well, although he's probably not as interested in overeating right at this moment. Yes, especially <laughs> after this meet. He's probably tired of it. <laughs> right. He's just wanted some carrot sticks for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, it says the specific energy surplus required to facilitate muscle hypertrophy is unknown. 
But there's clear evidence of an anabolic stimulus, of course, from excess energy intake, even independent of resistance training. And that's been one of our mantras over the years, right? Overeating itself. Yeah. And Mike, you and I, we've geeked out over the years. Overeating by itself causes lean gains. I mean, not exclusively. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly not exclusively lean gains. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it says common textbook recommendations are often based solely on the assumed energy stored within the tissue being assimilated. So, for example, if we talk about there are 3,500 calories stored in a pound of fat, you know. Um, but when it comes to muscle tissue, it's not that easy, right? It's so metabolically active. Um, if you look at some of the textbooks I use, like the Mel Williams textbook, it'll the sweet spot in the middle of the range is around uh, 2,800 calories to build a new pound of muscle. But that's not just based yeah. on what's in a pound of muscle, like if you burned it away in a calorimeter – it's based on the protein synthetic demands and all this stuff. Anyway, it says, unfortunately, the guidance of just assuming how much energy is stored in that new tissue uh, likely fails to account for the metabolic adjustments right, that would occur. And this is a great paper. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I, this is open access. Um, so I would encourage everybody to go take a look at this because, again, Frontiers of Nutrition, Slater and colleagues – Open access. You can just go grab this, and there's even nice, colorful um, diagrams about what goes into this. And they kind of point out all these metabolic demands, right? I mean, protein synthesis is calorie demanding. Uh, carrying extra muscle mass in itself, right, creates more work throughout the day as yep. you move a bigger body around. Uh, there are things like um, diet-induced thermogenesis, right, or the thermic effect of food, whatever you like to call that, is enhanced. I mean, there's a lot of things that make this very hard, or uh, soreness, right, and things like that. Just the fact that when you're sore, there's a mild injury response. And there's just all these things that you have to overcome. And I like the, kind of the point of this paper is something that we say often, Mike, which I think is you think you're in a surplus, but when you account for all of these other demands, right, of being larger and tr weight training, uh, well, God, yeah, let's not forget the cost of a weight training session itself in calories. You know, might be 300 calories right there or more. Yeah. Um, and if you're providing more like carbohydrates, especially if you're doing higher intensity work, a lot of times in clients I've seen this all the time is you can do more work or you can do a higher quality of work. So you're, you know, just a simple calories in, calories out, you're technically burning more calories a lot of times during exercise too. Yeah. Oh, right. See, so it's really hard to account for all of these things. And this paper really points that out. So I love it. Um, they say uh, estimates of gains, right, of like, say, per kg or per pound of, of muscle gain um, have never been validated as far as the sweet spot. Yeah. Uh, uh, it says um, also it hasn't really been validated in this kind of comes back to what you just said about the carbohydrates and the quality of training, where the excess energy should come from, right? Fats and carbs are your basic fuel sources. So where would they come from? So if I just kind of just pan through this just quickly, it says individual athlete nuances must be considered. Um, it goes on to say a recent meta-analysis suggested dietary protein supplementation does enhance resistance training induced gains. Um it says, it makes the point, resistance training alone provides a far greater stimulus for uh, muscle growth, essentially, than just protein supplementation. And I think that's yeah. worth pointing out. Like, you could take whey protein three times a day, but if you're not training, bro, you know, then you're not really going to partition the nutrients as you would desire. 
Yeah, and there are different responses, as you know. So if you look at exercise, you know, depending upon if you're an advanced athlete, maybe 24 hours, you see an increase muscle protein synthesis. If you're, you know, not advanced, maybe 48 hours or longer. But it, I'll explain to students is that shifts that whole baseline up because that's kind of like this semi-chronic effect. And then feeding on top of that, right, Stu Phillips has shown this a lot, has a higher spike, but it's very short-lived. So you have these kind of three to five protein spikes during the day and they're they're both additive but they both work on slightly different time scales too so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh let's see what else is here one thing i rolled my eyes a little bit about and this is where academic you know mike we've been often talking back and forth like experiments yes but also experience and one of the things they say here which isn't false at all but as someone who's lived through this you know we can i'm rolling my eyes at least that's my bias it says a positive energy balance is not supported by some because of the potential for increments in fat mass gain. Well, of course. Like, yeah. like if you're a, a linebacker, okay, maybe you don't want to look like a sumo wrestler. But anybody who listens to our podcast, and they're really focused, I think, on like resistance training, bodybuilding, powerlifting kinds of things um, – they know that there's some fat mass that's going to come into the picture. I mean, anybody who thinks it's 100% lean gain is delusional, you know. So they say it's not supported by some because of the potential for some fat gain. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and I've seen that in people who are just, you know, not, not to rip on my friends who are rock climbers or, you know, some other relative bodyweight sports. But, you know, there's a few sports where I get that you have to support your own mass and adding a couple pounds can make a, a big difference. But if you're trying to add, you know, strength and especially if you're not using drugs, you're going to have to put up with adding some amount of fat. You can, unless you're a complete newbie, get, you know, completely 100% lean body mass gains without any fat. Of so. course, right? I, and I, you know what? It, now, it's funny for you and I to say, of course, because when you look at YouTube that seems oh, yeah. to be like this underlying <laughs> assumption. I wish we had a quarter, me, you, and Phil each. Every time somebody said, oh. I want to gain mass and lose fat at the same time, you know? Uh, I, what I usually say to people is, you're asking me to put you in a calorie surplus and a calorie deficit at the same time, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're trying to ride two horses with one ass. Just pick uh, one. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, now, there is speculation, and this paper actually touches on it, that – well, maybe it's not all exogenous, you know, externally consumed dietary carbs. What if you could tap your fat stores? But again, short yep. of something like combined androgen and growth hormone abuse, I've never seen anybody be able to exclusively get the calories necessary for muscle gain from their existing fat stores, right? This is a very yeah. hormonally driven thing, and that's why polypharmacy is a thing, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's something I've wondered about for like years and I've had all sorts of crackpot theories about why it may happen. And I just put out, there's a recent mouse study that looked at, you know, mice who were better able to access fat stores. They had a uh, less breakdown of protein amino acids in their tissues. Again, it's experimental. It's a mouse study, all that kind of stuff. But there's, there's some data even in humans to show that there's mechanisms where this should be possible. The big caveat is exactly what you said in the, the practical real world. Man, I just don't really ever see it happen hardly ever. 
Yeah. So, yep. yeah. Uh, rank newbies, like back to our point, you know, yep. compared to – or like an experienced guy with that quote-unquote muscle memory who's coming back. Um, yep. And in fact, here's two quotes to specifically to what we just said. It says, the exact energy cost of skeletal muscle hypertrophy is not known. Likewise, it's not clear if this energy cost can be met purely from endogenous, that is internal fat stores, uh, or exogenous sources like the diet. And then they go on to say, concurrent reductions in fat mass and gains in fat-free mass. So again, the simultaneous home run here we're talking about have been observed in elite and professional athletes following a return to sport after an off-season break. So, yep. and I, I think we would probably agree on that, right? If you're a rank noob and you've just never exercised before, your potential for gains, mass muscle gain, is tremendous. You know, you could put on 20 pounds of muscle mass in a year, you know, and that's the kind of thing that any experienced guy is going to have a hard time. Although the experienced guys, what they do have in their favor, right, is... All, I don't know. It, maybe it's that slow uh, accumulation of, I don't know, fibroblastic activity or, you know, you actually have more capability to respond yeah. and you're just reawakening it, you know. Yeah, the kind of myonuclear domain theory, right? So you've right. got more of the nuclei kind of hanging out and so it's easier to rebuild. And I've just wondered if it's just the sheer cost of in those people with the return to a sport or things like that, that the sheer cost of reassembling all this expensive protein tissue is just so much lower because you kind of have some of the building materials, quote unquote, hanging around. Yeah. And you've kind of done it before. And from a, a habit standpoint, those people are relatively easy to coach. They've been there before. They have the expectation that they can do it. They've actually done it. So all those things I think add into that too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Listeners, if you're not familiar, uh, uh, mus muscle cells are very – they're actually big, right? They're not like you, the traditional like biology basic textbook little circular balloon. They're myonucleate. They're multinucleate, right? So you wake up these fibroblasts, and we had uh, Joey Antonio, Dr. Antonio, on yeah. talking about this ages ago. But, you know, you kind of wake up these baby uh, quiescent muscle cells and they donate their nuclei to the big brother next to them and once you have more nuclei each one of those nuclei can reach into the cytoplasm of the cell and kind of manipulate you know protein synthetic gains if you will um so yeah it's an interesting concept about how these guys make their rapid comebacks in that con late concept of muscle memory um there is a bit in here about uh fat versus lean gain purely on overfeeding uh, and they say, and I think you'll agree with this, Mike, that uh, genetic variance is huge, uh, but they've done identical twin studies and that sort of thing. And that uh, overfeeding alone, according to this paper, and they're citing lots of evidence, it's a big review, overfeeding alone typically leads to about a two to one increase in fat versus lean. Now, that's yeah, presented. That's what I've seen. Yeah, and that's presented negatively, I think. But again, Phil right now, yeah. he's like, hell yeah, two to one. You know, like if yeah. if I end up with a, a fatter ass, <laughs> but my quads, I could put an inch on both of my quads, bring it, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of those studies are in people who are not lifting or are barely recreationally active. Exactly. They're not in advanced athletes. Right. And they're not training. I mean, I'm talking about solely overfeeding, right? Exactly. You're still going to put Correct. on one kilogram of muscle mass for each two kilograms of fat mass. Like, and yeah. you're not doing anything but pigging out. 
Um, yeah. Like yeah. no training at all. And so that's, that's very interesting. <laughs> Plus, we both know, just like some people diet better than others from like a fat yep. loss perspective, some people just make gains like crazy for, you know, genetic reasons. Uh, it could be hormonal, but we got to get away from this idea that testosterone or growth hormone are the single mechanism for hypertrophy, you know. Uh. Uh, but it's it, it there's no doubt there's individual differences. So this two to one for overfeeding alone, yeah, there probably probably are people that you would just love to hate where they overfeed and the ratio is quite a bit even better than that. And you'd be like, oh my god, <laughs> you know, like you're just getting buff and you you're not even training. I don't know. Although I don't see that a lot, right? The resistance training is yeah, clearly rare. the trigger, clearly the trigger to partition um, the nutrients into muscle. So. Um, Did they give some estimate about if you're an athlete, like how many excess calories you should hit to try to maximize, you know, lean body mass while trying to minimize fat gain? Yep. Um, in fact, I was just about to say conclusions. Sweet. Uh, the creation of an energy surplus is commonly advocated by sports nutrition practitioners. Here it comes. And I don't want to spoil the the punchline, but it's not going to surprise you, Mike. Uh, <laughs> it says that um, to start conservatively with an energy surplus up to 2,000 kilojoules per day. So for us Americans, that's what, 4.18, 500-ish, about 500 yeah, extra about, yeah. kcal per day. And then yeah. monitor the response. And that's what you always yeah. say, right? You love to monitor people. It's the engineering, yeah. you, I think. Oh, um, totally. You know, um, whether it's movement patterns or just body comp, if, so long as you give people enough several weeks. Again, I think that's one of those oh, misleading totally. misleading things on YouTube is the, the rate of gain is absurd is what when people talk about this stuff. You know, I was looking at something on YouTube <sighs> What did it say this morning? Put on like eight pounds of muscle in a week, or I'm like, Whoa. oh my god! I'm like, you're not doing the math there, bro. <laughs> you're that's yeah. not going to happen. Um, but yeah, it says 500 plus 500 a day, and then monitor, uh, and then it, further it says there does not appear to be any metabolic or functional benefits to the source of the energy surplus. That is carbs versus fats, uh, affording the practitioner an opportunity to adjust to the client. And that should make sense, right? If you've got a family history of, I think, type 2 diabetes or you have any reasons that carbs aren't going to be the only source for you, okay, then try a, a more fat in the fuel mix, you know, sort of thing. So Yeah, I think the caveat there, as long as you have enough carbohydrates to fuel exercise performance, um, and some people will dramatically underestimate how much that is, but if you're, you know, very metabolically flexible, then it probably doesn't matter a whole lot as long as you're, so what I do in clients is I look to make sure that as we're going up, their performance is good. We may play around with you know periods of higher carbohydrates to see if their performance goes up even further. But if that kind of plateaus, you know, at that point, and they're a healthy person, they don't have any you know, pathologies, diabetes, whatever. It I don't think it matters a, a whole lot unless you get on the the extremes. Um, there is some interesting data though. If you overfeed on carbohydrates versus fat. If you have someone who just loves eating all the time, your body may preferentially oxidize more of those carbohydrates as as compared to fat. Um, but again, you're talking about just kind of, I don't want to say wasted calories, but in essence, if you have someone who's more prone to overeating and they're a little bit more worried about body comp, I may err more on the carbohydrate side because of that. But you know, that's still pretty theoretical at this point. Yeah, we've... 
We've actually suggested over the years, I mean, if, if in theory you hold protein constant like grams per kg or gram per pound, let's say you eat a gram per pound, that's plenty of surplus protein. Oh, yeah. And then let's say you eat half a gram per pound of fat. It's the carbs that really, in my mind, you're manipulating to such huge yeah. effect. But I know people like keto and they're anti-carb and at least this paper suggesting, yeah, then overfeed the fats. Um, I will say this, though. Uh, a, a review I'm working on right now, uh, they actually created – they took people that were basically in ketosis and overfed, and I wasn't too impressed with what they were suggesting. Like it, it really didn't look like it's a highly anabolic response, almost to your point. Like you, for performance and for gains, I think carbs really have to be part of the fuel mix if you want to build a lot of muscle mass and be explosively um, performing you know, as part of your lifestyle. But – you know, I probably get some heat for that. that study where they actually in a caloric surplus, because there's a couple studies that were done that tried to do that, and they ended up not even being in a caloric surplus because they were so satiated they just didn't overeat what they thought they were. Oh yeah, well this one I, I can give you, I can send you the reference. You've probably read it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, they reported a calorie surplus, but but with again the, the gains in fat-free mass were not that stellar. I'm I, in a sense in this review, I'm kind of making the point that you can manipulating fat and being in ketosis is probably good for fat loss, but don't conflate it with performance and muscle gain and a lot of other things because those claims get exaggerated, I think. Yeah, and that even gets into, are you really in a caloric surplus? What type of training are you doing? You know, if you're doing the, you know, even hypertrophy stuff, but your rest periods are super long and you can maintain, you know, good quality of training, I think you can probably do it, but I think it's going to be a little bit harder. And if you start throwing in a lot of speed and power components, that's that's a completely different matter, too. Right on. Right on. Yeah, I'm sure you can get in a calorie surplus to this the point of this paper. You can do it with fat. Let's say you did lots of like uh, negatives and, you know, you could actually get yourself without expending enormous amount of calories or being super explosive or that kind of stuff, you could do hypertrophy training with negatives and stuff like that. A good point about actual surplus because when you eat tons of protein and fat, it's very filling and it's, you know, it might be harder than you think, especially because drinking fats becomes a little bit more of a challenge. I mean, you can have peanut butter shakes and stuff. But. And last comment I'm going to drop off to go present here is there's actually a couple of studies that are being done uh, now for the listeners. So Dr. Eric Helms, uh, Brad Dieter, and some other guys are doing a study right now. I think they're still doing data collection of looking at how many calories surplus do you need to be in and looking at what is the ratio of lean body mass gains. Uh, myself, Dr. Ben House, Dr. Tommy Wood are doing another 16-week study, I think, where we're just uh, pretty advanced athletes, you know, double body weight squat in order to get in. We're looking at some acute parameters if we just beat the crap out of them with training twice a day. And then chronically, we're trying to look with DEXA and things of that nature. If you're in a caloric surplus, what is kind of that percentage of lean body mass to fat mass gains related to calories? Right. Yeah, so, that'll, it'll be interesting to see how close you get to this recommendation from this review that's, it, that it's, the sweet spot's about 500 additional calories if, yeah. you're, if you're actually wanting to monitor and make sure it, there's not an undue amount of of fat gain you know yeah okay well cool. have fun all my right. man thank you all right we'll see ya bye all right everyone i think what we're gonna do then 
I think what we'll do is just go to break. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to continue this theme of overeating, essentially. Uh, there's some interesting research on what makes a food hyper-palatable. So, beyond tasty. And that can be very helpful for those of you trying to gain weight, etc. So, I'll be back in just a little bit. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it, do it now! Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your Iron Brothers and Sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety 
the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everyone, we're back with more news time with Lonnie. I mentioned hyperpalatable foods. Let's get to that. Uh, this is from the Institute of Food Technologists, uh, IFT Daily. Researchers offer data-driven definition of hyperpalatable foods. So it says, foods that contain a mix of ingredients to make food palatable and enhance consumption are often called, quote-unquote, hyperpalatable by researchers. These are often processed foods or sweets with alluring combinations of fat, sugar, other carbohydrates, and sodium. If we take a look at this, um, now they are offering specific metrics uh, that might qualify a food as hyperpalatable. So they're trying to define this a little bit better. Researchers at the University of Kansas sought to define these criteria. Uh, here's a quote. We essentially took all of the descriptive definitions of the foods from the literature, for example, Oreos or mac and cheese, and we entered those one by one into a nutrition program. And the software provided fine-grained detail on how many calories per serving uh, were in the food and how much fat, sodium, sugar, other carbohydrates, uh, including fiber, uh, and all sorts of other things. So again, they're looking at calories per serving and essentially what's contributing to those calories or influencing them as far as consumption. Really bang for the buck. I mean, it's like Phil's thing with eating the you know greasy uh, dollar menu chicken sandwiches sort of thing. It says, uh, the synergy between key ingredients in a food creates an artificially enhanced palatability experience that is greater than any key ingredient would produce alone. Uh, And they go on to explain a few more things here. Um, 
we were able to see that there were essentially three types of foods that appear to cluster together in terms of their ingredients. Uh, they found that 62% of foods that were essentially available to Americans met the criteria to be in one of these clusters. So there's a, a lot of foods out there that meet this hyper palatable combination of you know sugars, fats, sodium, things like that. It says uh, 70% of these foods were qualified as being high in fat and sodium, such as meat dishes or egg and milk-based foods. So that sort of explains, I think, the popularity of those things when people are bulking up. Again, 70% of these hyperpalatable foods, high in fat and sodium, like meat dishes and uh, uh, egg and milk-based foods. It says 25% of available foods that meet this hyperpalatable, one of these groups, were high in fat and sugar. So they were fat-sugar combos, so you might think like something like donuts or pastries. Um, less than 10% were in more than one cluster. So although a lot, in fact, most foods seem to be in these categories of hyperpalatable, only 10% could meet more than one criteria of hyperpalatable. In other words, maybe they were high in fat and sodium, like the meat dishes, but they were also high in sugar uh, and that sort of thing. So pretty interesting stuff here. Um, here's a, a quote. Uh, I think that could warrant something like food labels saying this is hyper palatable, according to this uh, Fazino. So I find that almost interesting, right? Kind of funny that they're actually saying maybe we should warn people that this food meets one of these categories now that we have definitions of hyper palatable. And I I scribbled mwahaha next to this because if you think about it, this is the reverse scenario that I've looked for in the past when I was bulking or especially Phil because he's even less worried about fat gain during the bulking phases. Like these are the things – they want to warn people with a label not to eat when, in fact, there's a lot of our listeners. This is exactly what they would seek. So interesting stuff as far as defining hyperpalatable foods. Let's see what else is on our news list here today. More from the IFT, Institute of Food Technologists. Gen Z is more open to new food technology than previous generations. So this caught my eye. Actually, it's funny, but behind the scenes, I've been to a couple professor workshops where they were trying to tell us how Gen Zers uh, respond to things differently. Apparently very visual, uh, the newest generation with sort of young adult financial power. Uh, they're just a little bit different in their connection with social media uh, and you know whatnot, but so this says the newest generation of food consumers with purchasing power, Gen Z, is more open to food technology than older generations, according to new research from global communications consultancy Ketchum, K-E-T-C-H-U-M. Uh, also, communicating with them could be more effective by selecting the right combination of scientifically supported facts and benefits. So a lot of Iron Radio listeners, of course, are the egghead, meathead crossbreeds, <laughs> if you will. Um, 
and Mike and Phil and I, and you guys, I, I think we kind of fit this Gen Z perspective in that we are looking for scientifically supported uh, facts and benefits. We're not chumps. I don't think you have to be young to appreciate this. It's just that on average, I think Ketchum is saying that young people can be marketed to differently. According to the Food Tech Consumer Perception Study, Gen Z respondents indicated they are more likely to try a food grown with technology. I find that a little odd because any agriculture is going to be some form of growing food with technology. But okay, so food grown with technology, 77%. And are more comfortable overall with the use of technology to grow food, 71%. So again, one's more likely to try, the other is comfort level. So 77 and 71%. They are compared to millennials, which are 67% likely to try and 56% quote-unquote comfortable. So, you know, a few percentage points down. Gen X, and I think that's me, actually. Gen Xers are 58% as far as likely uh, to try and 51% comfortable. And then baby boomers, which is the generation before me, like my oldest sister, which is quite a bit older than I am, baby boomers are 58% and 58%. So I guess that's comparable to the Gen Xers. So again, uh, younger generation, more in the 70s as far as embracing food growing technology compared to people from my age group or older, which are more like in the 50s percentage. It says a higher percentage of Gen Z and millennials qualified as what are called evangelists, a type of influencer. So food influencers, presumably through electronic means. I guess that's what we do here at Iron Radio. Uh, it says Ketchum uh, tested multiple food technology videos in order to better understand words and images that consumers uh, like or respond to, if you will. As far as food technology, this is almost creepy to me in that they're showing young people and older people videos and they're looking at things like our physical responses, like micro facial expressions on a camera, heart rate, skin fluctuations. And then later they sort of did more in-depth interviews as well. So they're looking at how to trigger you, essentially, um, in this case, it's more about technology, but obviously you can see the advertisers are up to all kinds of uh, clever and almost subversive things as far as getting you to react. So here's a quote. It says, getting this message right has never been more important. Food evangelists are open to learning about food tech and will share more with their networks. But they're also quick to dismiss a poor explanation, said Kim Essex partner and managing director of food and agriculture and ingredients for Ketchum. So I, I think that describes pretty much all of the Iron Radio people, right? So open to learning about food technology, but quick to dismiss the bozos. That's my word. Um, it says the study showed what kind of missing information can trigger skepticism. And one of the things to prevent that is simply explaining the problem up front. Like, what's the problem that the food industry or technology is trying to overcome? So explaining that up front is important. So I like that. I mean, if that's what all of their studies and technology tweaks are about, you know, being transparent and up front, then I'm good with that. So interesting stuff, though, that younger people 
you know, might not be that averse to something like lab-grown meats and the things that we've been talking about lately compared to uh, older generations. If you don't agree or if you're an older generation and you really embrace a lot of this stuff, I mean, I feel like I'm in that almost Gen Z category according to that research, uh, send us an email. Let us know what you think about that. All righty, so we have one more. This is from Carmen Leach, L-E-I-T-C-H. She does good work as far as science journalism goes. From Lab Roots uh, is the way I received this, just sort of a news catcher. And I'd recommend it. They send good stuff that's often relevant to health and wellness and fitness and whatnot. UVB exposure can change the gut microbiome. So this is almost Buddhist in its interconnectedness of all things sort of approach here. It says the microbial community in our gut can be significantly influenced by environmental factors. Uh, New research has shown that the sun is one of those influences. The ultraviolet B rays that shine on the skin uh, affect the bacteria in your large intestines. You might not think that, but the link is, of course, vitamin D. Uh, Vitamin D is helping cause these alterations And it may help explain why the UVB light appears to help protect against inflammatory disorders. So it's an interesting thought that sun on your skin could be anti-inflammatory throughout your body, partly through a vitamin D and gut bacteria mechanism. So there was a study done here, Professor Bruce Valance, V-A-L-L-A-N-C-E, from the University of British Columbia. Uh, His team of investigators looked at a group of 21 healthy women Uh, that were exposed to UVB light uh, on their bodies for three one-minute sessions in one week. Uh, Before and after the exposure, stool samples were were taken so they could look at the gut microbes, and blood samples were collected to look at vitamin D. The scientists found that the diversity in the gut microbiome was significantly increased by UVB exposure, but only in participants that did not take vitamin D supplements. So honestly, if you're in the summertime, why are you taking a lot of vitamin D supplements anyway? Um, But it's interesting that the natural sunlight and the endogenous or internal vitamin D synthesis then obviously affects your gut biome in a positive way. So generally when we we say more diversity, that's considered a, a good thing. So another quote here from Valance. It is likely that exposure to UVB light somehow alters the immune system in the skin initially, then more systemically, which in turn affects how favorable the intestinal environment is for the different bacteria. Uh, And ultimately, this identifies a novel skin-gut axis for health. So that's really interesting stuff. Again, I'm a fan of Carmen Leach. She does good stuff. So that's going to be our news time episode, everyone. Uh, Try to keep it as anabolic as possible and relevant as possible. Uh, Keeping up with current science trends as well. So next week, we'll just catch up with you again. Uh, I believe Phil's meet is next week. I think he's actually staying in California a week to kind of get in sync with everyone there. uh, Hang out with some of the, the top power lifters there. Then do his meet. Uh, And then, you know, we'll obviously catch up with him about his experiences. So we'll see you next time.
Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.